Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm joined by Raphael Baer and George Eaton to talk about universal credit and problems at the Department of Work and Pensions, while Caroline Crampton talks to Rachel Cook about the future of television, and I talk to Ian Steadman about the new film Gravity and what the best film about space really is. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week in politics. George, you've written for you, I believe, quite a scolding blog this morning about Ian Duncan Smith in the wake of... um, So the Public Accounts Committee has has looked into universal credit. First of all, tell me what the report says. It doesn't actually tell us much that hasn't been said already, although it puts it probably stronger than anyone else has, led by... Margaret Hodges says most of the £480 million of public money that's been spent on the project is going to have to be written off, that it's been uh, terribly managed from the start, that they're actually going to miss the deadlines. They've set themselves the new deadlines, which are already um, have already been uh, been set back uh, by months, and, and um, that if they're going to meet the 2017 target, they're going to have to accelerate the process, but that poses new risks. I mean, if it doesn't work, people won't get their benefits on time. That's a, that's a new disaster. And this is, comes back to a conversation we've had a couple of times, Raph, doesn't it, about this idea about Ian Duncan Smith and, and faith-based policy, the sort of belief that if you just believe in it hard enough... Yes, the, the criticism that you hear from Ian Duncan Smith from his civil servants and from people who look uh, at welfare policy independently and have tried to feed back some concerns to the department that the universal credit wouldn't work, and indeed from some sceptical conservatives, is that he sees the world in terms of people who are with him and against, or, and those who are against him, and the ones who are with him, it is oh, quite literally an evangelical mission to to use the welfare to reform the welfare system uh, in a way uh, in, in in a compassionate conservative way which uh, configured as as making it more lucrative for people to work than to claim benefits um the problem is while that's a, a sort of an admirable ambition if you're a conservative it might be an admirable um, admirable ambition if you're not a conservative but if it doesn't work and as george says you sp- waste all the money at what point does 
in Duncan Smith representing for the Conservatives this sort of crusading, moralising, compassionate conservatism and the sort of symbolic utility he has for David Cameron in that respect. At what point does that start to be outweighed by the fact he plainly cannot run a massive spending department without ballsing everything up? And you, you feel that we might be reaching a bit of a tipping point on that one, but I think his job will be safe largely because of that that strange symbolic value he has. But this isn't the only problem, is it? So they were trying to replace disability living allowance with a personal independence payment. That's gone. They've lost an appeal about the independent living fund, which is another disability benefits reform. What, is, what of his flagship reforms, what has happened? What exists? Well, the benefit cap has been has been introduced and it's it's uh, inflicting you know, a lot of hardship on the poor, a lot of hardship on people who live in London, can't find affordable housing. But the Tories would say it's hugely popular with the public. Um, it's survived all the, the legal challenges to it. And uh, in our view, it is saving saving some public money. Let's, although let's remember the benefit cap, the, the politics of that have worked quite well. But that's George Osborne's strategic judgment that essentially you can you can put forward a fairly blunt message that says, look, the problem is the last government just hosed slightly idle people down with money. And it isn't really fair on the people who who are just getting on trying to work hard. The way you make work pay and the way you change the welfare system rather than really reforming it is by trying to cut taxes for people who are working and take away benefits from people who aren't. Now, you can argue the morality of that in, indefinitely, what seems to be the case is politically George Osborne has been entirely vindicated in his the battle ongoing tussle he's had with IDS where Osborne has been saying that, yeah every the, the halls of the DWP are strewn with the corpses of people who've thrown themselves at the welfare system with clever reforming strategies it doesn't work you just bring the bill down and then use the tax system to reward people and politically and you know financially and the rest of it um but that's the thing he's won that argument basically cap, against it? is that it's yeah. a very clear message they say no one should have more than the average family earns and i mean you wrote a blog at the time pointing out well what about people who've got you know five or six children they can't yeah. magically have less children and therefore have lower benefit needs um my question is where does labor come back on this because actually they've gone along with a lot of this stuff the public accounts committee report says well we're all very committed to the idea of universal yeah. credit in practice is does that therefore take the sting out of their attack there's no there's an opportunity for labor here because what the, the the position that Labour have wanted to get into is to say that they've they've been on the defensive because they've been effectively attacked as as throwing money good money after bad through the benefit system. Um, what they would like to say is, you no, know, we believe in reforming the welfare system, but we do it in a sort of compassionate way, consistent with our values. Um, we don't just hand money out for nothing. Now, because IDS has sort of failed, there is an opportunity for Labour to say, no, we we could deliver something. You know, along the lines of what he was trying to do, but because we, you know, our heart is in the right place, we're Labour. We, you know, we we sort of support the ambition, but we can we can take this mantle on and do it properly, um, as long as at the same time they they make sure that there's a clear fiscal signal that they, that by reform they don't just mean reverse the cuts. Um, my sense is that so Rachel Reeves, the, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, is sort of working towards that kind of position but hasn't yet found exactly the right language to say we believe in reform uh, we don't quibble with the sort of the moral dimension of what ids said he was doing but we now it's now been proved that he can't do it so give us a go that, that, that it's not impossible to imagine a, an effective labor operator getting into that sort of space the question remains why is ids still in his job i think 
two reasons. I think the first reason is that they tried to move him back in the 2012 reshuffle. He was offered the justice brief. He made it clear that the, there was only one job he wanted to do in government. That was the reason he came back onto the front bench. I think Cameron and Ellsworth made the calculation that they couldn't afford to have a Eurosceptic right-winger sort of act as a rival centre of power on the, on the back benches. The other reason, I think, is that because the rollout of universal credit has been so limited, very few people actually know it exists. There hasn't been, you can't in the way you can, you can point to the NHS and say, you know, there's an A&E crisis. People say, yes, I, I had to wait this long for my appointment. You don't have people saying, well, yes, you introduced universal credit and now my tax credits are late. I can't afford to feed my children or heat my house. That hasn't happened. And so I think they've actually avoided... A political car crash by just permanently and constantly delaying it, He's which means by the pilot scheme essentially, but not that four hundred and fifteen million or whatever. Yes, yeah, so I mean there has been, in. yeah, exactly. That is uh, that's a great attack line for Labour because they can say, look, here's a supposedly fiscally responsible government wasting public money, um, but you know, I don't think it's been you know, anywhere near as much of a as a disaster as it as it could have been. The big failure is that Ian Duncan Smith entered government in 2010, promising to transform the welfare system by the end of the parliament. You know, that ambition is now completely dead. And just to finish, Raf, um, the general macroeconomic situation is looking a lot more healthy than it was, uh, you know, six months ago even. How are Labour gearing themselves up to deal with this idea of going into an election when things aren't utterly crap? Well, they have two approaches. One is... Uh, as we've discussed before, trying to change the, the sort of the top the theme of the conversation on the economy away from what do the public finances look like and is the economy growing because the public finances will be on a trajectory towards improvement and the economy will be growing at the time of an election to say what does the economy actually mean to you and your family and do you feel better off and they're a bit more confident on that in terms of uh, what the projections are in, in wages not keeping up still with growth and, and inflation so they can credibly say when it comes to can you pay your gas bill can you afford your season ticket as a commuter or uh, the, all those you know, similar issues um is this an economy that's actually doing for you what you need it to and, and they, they're strong on that uh, the the other side is they do know they still have to nail down that that sort of charge of or rebut that charge of fiscal laxity that they and I don't think anyone in either Ed Miliband's or Ed Balter's office thinks they will can achieve everything with the cost of living stuff because people will say yes I know I understand that maybe you feel sorry for me because I can't afford to pay my gas bill but I don't really that doesn't mean I'm going to hand the keys of the economy over to you if actually what you secretly want to do is just turn on the money taps again because we know there's no money that argument hasn't been won by Labour and, and my understanding of it is that the thing that still keeps them up at night a little bit is how do we what's the policy what's the thing that the, the firework we set off the emblem that we raise to say no we really do understand that it's your money we can't just spend it whatever we want and and that's they, they need to find that but they do know they need to find that and on that note i'll finish thank you very much george and Raf. Rachel Cook, who is our TV critic, and every week in the magazine she reviews one or sometimes two programmes that have been on, um, and so is in a very good position to say <laughs> what she thinks TV has been like in the last year, in recent months. So Rachel, is there anything that you'd like to pick out first off as being really good that you've loved? Well, you know, what I always say the same thing when people say, um, there's nothing on telly, I think that's rubbish, but you just have to be very selective. 
and I love telly and so there is always mm. I always find something good to review or at least something good to slag off but and just because I slag something off doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy watching it because in mm. a weird perverse way I obviously did <laughs> um, um, and I, you know so for me most years are, are, are good years I think this has been a slightly wonky year in the sense that um, there's a certain you can feel really ITV in the ascendant and the slight nervousness in the BBC. Mm. Um, and what that has led to is some quite good drama on ITV, but drama which is probably overpraised because it's on ITV. Everyone's like, oh my god, this is you know actually worth watching. So I know everyone loved Broadchurch. I wasn't mad on it. I thought the performances were great, but I didn't. I wasn't lost in it the way other mm. people were. I think it was overpraised because it was on ITV. That's definitely what I. Yeah. I, I wrote about it in the magazine at the time. Yeah. And I just and but from that perspective, you know, as someone who completely writes ITV off as somewhere where X Factor and football yes. live, yeah. suddenly I had a reason to look at yeah. it. It was. Yeah. And, I mean, the one thing I did like about it was that. They didn't show it on consecutive nights, which is this other trend. So we've got a good drama. We'll show it three mm. nights or five nights in, in a row. What they did was they showed it each week. And that did build the excitement. And I, I loved that because mm. I'm, I'm sort of, I suppose I long for the days when everyone was watching the same things and you could all talk about it. And it felt more like that. It felt like the 80s, really, the early 80s. I thought the same and I, I really agree with you about that because I think they do that consecutive yeah. night thing because they think well everyone just watches it on demand now anyway yes. so let's try and at least capture some sense yeah. but actually I think what Broadchurch showed was that the sort of new and old media can collide yes. in a really good way in that I liked watching yes. it at its scheduled time Absolutely. because everyone else was doing that and yes. you could talk to them all on Twitter yes, about it. I think it. you're so right. There was and a kind of big couch in the sky I where really you could all talk about I really hope that ITV it. have learned from that and, and that, that, you know, B the BBC as well because it gives you something to look forward to, mm, doesn't it? Absolutely. It punctuates your week, it's, you know, especially if you're at work all day long. It's nice to know that Thursday night or whenever is church night. I mean, the, the other thing that they did with that was they kept it really secret. Mm. Uh, that, so no one knew who done it. And I mean, the other trend, which I'm really makes me really annoyed, is increasingly long trails at the end of a programme for next week's, mm. you know, show. And I've just reviewed um, this new crime drama on uh, BBC One called The Escape Artist. And the, the trails are so long on it that, you know, you you, you just, you, you pretty much know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, and I, I just think that they need to stop that right now. So so there's ITV slightly in the ascendant. There's the BBC a bit nervous and troubled. And so what you end up with on the BBC is a lot of Bake Off, MasterChef, um, Spring Watch Live, sort of bankable... Uh, fairly cheap to make, family viewing mm. that just seems to go on and on and on and on. <laughs> and gets longer every year as well. Every time they bring it back, there's more of it. I know. I mean, on Monday, I, I sat down to watch University Challenge thinking, phew, Bake Off is over. And there was a kind of post-Bake Off programme on about, oh, really? I don't know, it was like the making of Bake Off or something. So they just, they just spin it out. And, um, you know, at the moment, I suppose it's, 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Paying dividends for them, but eventually that will be the, mm. the, you know, the golden goose that laid the golden egg. It will all go wrong because I think there are limits even for Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry. <laughs> um so, and then what, the other thing on on the BBC is a lot of, there's a lot of copycat. There are lots of dramas that you feel like you've seen them somewhere else. Mm. So, um, you know, Ripper Street on the BBC was sort of connected to Whitechapel, even though Whitechapel's set now. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, this new new one, The Escape Artist, it's, it, it feels like a mashup of every legal drama you've seen before um, mixed with every violent, uh, uh, you know, murder thing you've seen before. I mean, that's the other thing. There's, I think this has been a very bad year for TV involving crimes against women. Mm, um, that, the Fall, which was on BBC Two, you know, it had a marvellous performance at the heart of it from Gillian Anderson, who I just think is brilliant, but... The, the, the substance of it was just so grim. It was basically porny. Mm. It was kind of, it was murder porn. And even something as sort of cosy and anticipated as Downton mm. has now got a rape in it. I know. Which just given that that was, I've never been a, a big fan of it, but I've always thought it was a kind of, a bit like the Bake Off, a kind of uh, bankable, yeah, bland thing. safe safe thing and suddenly it's it's not anymore no you know, you've got all of the kind of repression of the era it's set in mm. and so why throw some more horrors at i the know women? i mean the thing about downton is just how amazingly badly written it is now so bad and yet written. the ratings are, are, up, yeah right? i mean and you, i you know i just can't i can only assume that because homeland has gone completely wrong as well People think, well, I'd rather have Downton going wrong, which has at least a comedy value, mm. than Homeland going wrong, which is just boring mm. and confusing and a bit like Dallas and Bobby waking up in the shower and finding out he's not dead. And I mean, <laughs> that's just like Carrie. Carrie now, is she working for the CIA? Is she not? Who knows anymore? It's just a kind of fantasy. Whereas I suppose at least Downton, yeah, you know what you're getting, but it's so bad. I can't understand mm. how it can be so badly written. I know exactly. I, I don't know very much about how TV gets made in the sense that I know Julian Fellows writes it um, and they keep commissioning it. But I was wondering, and it's hugely successful, has he got so successful to the point where no one tells him when it's bad? I don't know. Does he I mean, turn in scripts and they just go, OK, then? You know, I think maybe it's had such a success in America. Mm. Maybe they... Maybe they just thought, well, actually, we don't need to, you know, tell him not to do this and mm. that because, we, you know, we'll just go on being admired. I, I mean, I can't work it out. And it, there are so many anachronisms in it. You know, people are on 
difficult journeys and out of their comfort zones and <laughs> things that people just never used to say and it just seems and and then the, you know various things oh we'll just put a black person in and we'll just you know and it's just ridiculous so um I think that's pretty bad and then I mean I'm really enjoying uh, Breathless which is a kind of madman ripoff on ITV I'm really enjoying it but like I say it feels a bit like the hour the hour felt like a, a mm. bit like madman so you feel that there's nothing madly original. The most original thing on at the moment, which I've written around already, but I really want people to watch it, is The Ambassadors with yes. Mitchell and Webb. Because it's... Um, I, I haven't seen anything like it before. I mean, it is a sort of comedy, but it's also a drama. It, it presses all sorts of liberal, political, geopolitical buttons... It's incredibly well made and well written. And it seems to me that it really is original because who wants to sympathise with diplomats who have such cushy lives? Well, exactly. It's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a sort of, I thought of it as a drama with jokes yes. in a strange kind yeah. of way, set in a, a fictional stan, sort of Tazbekistan yeah. yeah, or something. Yeah, Tazbekistan. Um, but um, Sophie McBain, who's our features writer, her fiancé works in the diplomatic service and uh, he reports that apparently there are lots of in-jokes Oh, really? In it. So apparently, oh, really? even down to the details, like um, they showed a brief shot in the first episode of a, a folder on the desk and it had a number on it. And apparently this number is the number that's always assigned to no hope cases that you know you're really? never going to... So things like that, they've really... Oh, interesting. They've obviously got a consultant or something on the on the show who really knows his stuff. I mean, I'm sure that that's a joke that about 20 people in the entire country were laughing at. But nevertheless, he thought it was nevertheless. I mean, you um, feel that it's been made with real attention mm. to detail and it, you know, it, it does, it's kind of, there's something quite merciless about it and it, it you know, it's, it has a real satirical heart and I, I just really, I really like it and I want people to watch it. I, I, I also think if you, if you are in search of originality, you, you know, you basically have to go to documentaries, mm. which are still, we still do better than the Americans. They might write dramas a bit more slickly than us, but I still think we do um, documentary better, more quirkily, um, in a less sensationalist way. And I have really been loving watching this crazy series called Iceland Foods, Life in the Freezer Cabinet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the title alone makes you want to watch it because there is no life in a freezer cabinet. It also sounds <laughs> strangely like a sort of rip-off of a David Attenborough um, yes, program. Yes, it does. You know, if we're kind of venturing yeah, with him point. into the freezer cabinet or something. And it's really good. And, it, and the, it's like all the best documentaries. It's a microcosm of Britain. So you're in this small world which is the head office of Iceland supermarkets which this mad bloke started in the 70s with 30 quid and two freezers and is now worth um well it's got 800 shops and it has you know billion pound turnovers um but um it 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 tells you so much about modern britain it, it, really every politician should watch it because mm. it tells you about what life is like you know, not in London, not even in Birmingham or Manchester, but in, you know, the small towns where life is a struggle. And it's it's not depressing. It's incredibly joyful because Iceland, who knew, is one of the best companies to work at in Britain and is consistently voted that by its employees. But um, 
but it's so it's very cheerful and it's funny because you know there's a lot of comedy to be had in various of the Iceland products but underneath all that it, it, there's something incredibly real about it you know this is this is what Britain is it's a it's a, a small town where that where nothing stirs there are no shops all there is is a branch of Iceland mm. and the people that go in it you know their lives are tough and it I think it's just really beautifully made and intelligent well we'll see what happens in the rest of the year but uh, thanks very much Rachel I'm joined by our space correspondent, Ian Stedman, to talk about the new film Gravity. So I selflessly passed on my invitation for you to go and see it at a special top celeb screening mm. last night in London. Um, Thank you so much. First of I all... enjoyed it massively. <laughs> so first of all, tell anyone who might know, not know, um, tell us what the film is. And uh, it is the new film by Alfonso Cuaron, who did Children of Men, most famously. Um, and it is quite simply about um, a hypothetical situation, which is actually quite possibly could happen where a satellite orbiting the earth breaks up and turns into a debris field moving around the earth at um, as the film describes it as fast as a speeding bullet train which um i had problems faster surely uh about well faster you'd think my memory might be failing me um but this debris field goes around the earth and hits into a space shuttle crew who's repairing the Hubble Space Telescope, destroys the space shuttle, and two astronauts are left uh, with just a jetpack, and they have to make their way to the International Space Station, where hopefully they can catch a spacecraft that um, as a lifeboat down to Earth. But lots of stuff happens. There's twists and turns, and um, it's it's great. It's, it's like I describe it as the towering inferno in space. It's just... Uh, I, I was gripping the... I, I, you know, calling a film gripping sounds... It literal, it literally is. Um, what's quite interesting is, so Ryan Gilby's reviewed it in this week's magazine, and he's written about how unusual it is because the film is basically stars Sandra Bullock. Yeah, you get a little bit of George Clooney, even though he's given equal billing on the poster. Yeah, and a little bit of another guy, and that's pretty much it. But he said how rare it is to get a single shot, even just whether it's a movie or even if it's just literally you know the protagonist, the person whose face is most often on screen. For it to be a woman in her 40s is quite incredible. For that to be mm. a sci-fi film is even rarer. I haven't seen that since, I guess, Alien being... It is, and there's a, there's a nod obviously. to Alien in that Sandra Bullock is dressed the same as Ripley with the vest and the shorts. Um, and yeah, it's, it's George Clooney's in it for about you know a third of it. And the film even does a, a nice little trick where it thinks it tricks you at one point into thinking that a man is going to save the day and then there's a little twist and he doesn't. And it's quite nice that it plays on your expectations like that. I don't think that's too big a spoiler. Sorry yeah. if it is. Um, <laughs> ruined it for everybody. We're yeah. getting letters now. Um, it'll make a change more the Russell Brand letters. So, you know, nice <laughs> yeah, to indeed. have some other people. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that the, the, the special effects have been lauded to high heaven and they're already talking about them being a kind of... Which is a... Yeah. Is it right? It was a British studio. It is. It's... Oh God, I can't it's remember a, the name. A, they're based in Soho and they're brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it, the the physical effects of, of weightlessness are captured just so well. I mean, so much of the film is people dealing with the fact that stuff in zero gravity doesn't ex- doesn't behave in the way you expect it to intuitively as creatures of of land. Um, things a lot of things flying into each other and bouncing off and and sort of the a lot of shots of people flying past stuff desperately trying to grab hold and not being able to. It's it's scary. 
um, I advised seeing it in 3D, which I never thought I'd say as well. Like, wow, that, yeah. that is true. Okay, so that's my two worries. So the first is A, 3D films, and the second is generally of a film when you hear people say the special effects are really amazing, that's code word for, and that's the only bit that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you said that you weren't a massive fan of the script. I, I found the script, well, that's purely because the film goes to, I, I describe it as like 90% scientifically accurate and it goes to it clearly goes to a lot of um effort to appear scientifically accurate in terms of the behavior of objects and weightlessness and stuff like that the design of the spaceships is, is how did they film the weightless stuff. sections do you know it's all cgi i guess it's on strings um uh, for apollo 13 uh ron howard actually took the actors up into the vomit comet the plane that does the weightlessness um and but that's about 11 to 15 seconds of weightlessness and alfonso Cuaron loves long tracking shots i mean 15 minute shots and things like that so you can do that so I think it's just all CGI with them on strings which is clever but works yeah that's um, but the script kind of lets down the scientific accuracy because uh, it's well it's just astronauts talking to each other and with Houston down on the ground and astronauts are extremely intelligent physicists doctors biologists that they are top scientists generally they know stuff uh, which makes it really weird why they explain things to each other like they're idiots for instance that debris field is moving like a speeding bullet train um george clooney's character at one point has to explain to sandra bullock's character who is the medical doctor on the mission that she shouldn't use uh, breathe so heavily because it uses up more oxygen stuff like this it's like it's ladled out for the viewer which is i guess understandable because not everyone's going to understand space and no but like, very hard like on a film where there's exposition on this yeah but it, I, I just found the script very um it it read just like not it wasn't uh, a realistic language used. okay it was, i'm gonna it, make you rank it and i'm gonna in terms of space films better yeah. or worse than moon i'd say better than moon okay simply because it's it's more ambitious than moon better uh, or worse than sunshine i think oh better than sunshine Sun, uh, moon's better than sunshine Okay, this, yeah. is, this, is, <laughs> this is the ranking of where these things go. Better or worse than that one Doctor Who episode that was a bit like Sunshine? Oh, easily better than with that. With the woman from East Yeah, it's not as good as 2001 A Space Odyssey, which also has excellent zero-G uh, sort of physics in it, considering, especially considering that was all like strings as well yeah. at the time. Um, um, yeah. I think I've run out of films in space. Alien is, yeah, well... It, it, it's one of the best... It's not a science fiction film. It's a disaster film. But it's one of the best disaster films ever made. Better or worse than the Doctor Who Christmas special <laughs> with Kylie in? Uh, oh, God, no. Nothing beats Kylie. Right, yeah. OK. On that note, I'll leave it. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Music